Hello and welcome to Pop Shop. I'm Alex Towles and this week I'm joined by Manas and Seb as we look through another defeat. Wow, three of those in a row, hey? Who would have thought we were in a title challenge all but two episodes ago? Obviously this one was in the FA Cup, but hey, it steals to Liverpool. It feels, it still feels bad. Um, let's start as we tend to do with the Pot Shop question. What do you guys do to unwind uh, when you're feeling frustrated, feeling tense, and you just need to chill out? What do you do to unwind? And of course, after the experience that has been watching Arsenal in these past few weeks, watching football doesn't count. Seb, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, football does the exact opposite of unwinding and winds you up. Um, I think it's become quite apparent that I'm a quite a big film person, so watching a film, watching a television series, if there's anything out there that I'm particularly interested in, that's usually the go-to for just relaxing and unwinding. I mean, to be fair, we could tell, uh, given your uh, <laughs> incredible film reference, which gave the title to last week's pod. Do you think you'll have another one for this week? I might have. I've, I've, I put about 10 of those into the group chat at some point. I'll have to look those up again. Uh, I'm sure we can think of something. Um, something about being annoyed and losing. <laughs> anyway, Manus, what do you do to unwind? I usually watch something as well, but at times I do read something because it's just slower, especially after watching football. Um, and if I don't want to think about the game anymore, I just read something usually. This answer is kind of cheating because it is in a way football related, but I play a frankly ridiculous amount of football manager. And so that is my answer. Um, Recently, I have gotten Aston Villa promoted to the Premier League in 2030 after joining them in 2029. Uh, highlight of the season was beating Manchester United 3-1 in the Carabao Cup uh, in a game where Manchester United fielded a fullback pairing of Takahiro Tomiyasu and Kieran Tierney. Was Unai the one who got them relegated or...? Uh, no, it was Sebastian Hernes. Oh, that's even... Oh, no, I don't like that at all. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, right. I suppose we can avoid it no longer. Let's talk about the game. It was a feisty game where neither team would have been content with a replay due to the congested schedule that both have had over the last month or so. Arsenal got off to a fast start, creating early chances by pressing Liverpool high and bypassing Liverpool's own press with long balls to Reese Nelson. In the first 30 minutes in particular, Arsenal were almost totally dominant, but, and stop me if you've heard this one before, unable to convert any of their chances. In the second half, Liverpool changed tack, going long more often to avoid Arsenal's press, a change which made the game much more even. It looked for all the world like it would peter out into a quite exciting nil-nil, but a nil-nil nonetheless, before Martin Erdegaard gave away a cheap foul on the left-hand side. Right-hand side. Left-hand side. Liverpool's left-hand side. Allowing Trent Alexander-Arnold to swing in a free kick that Jacob Kivio just couldn't help but send past Aaron Ramsdale for 1-0. 
We then went all guns blazing for the remaining 10 minutes, uh, which gave Liverpool plenty of space to counter into, which Luis Diaz was too happy to take advantage of and seal the result in injury time. As I alluded to there, it was a game of two halves. Uh, the first half where we looked very good and much the better side, and the second half where it was a lot more even and Liverpool were able to finish us off. Um, Seb, can you go into a little bit more detail about what changed at halftime? Yeah, um, I watched the game back focusing on how we created our chances and what changed uh, in the second half. So the game became more even and tilted towards Liverpool's favour at around 60 minutes. Um, I wrote down each of the sequences we had that ended up in some sort of shot be it a good value shot or a bad value shot. Um, there were 15 sequences um, total, 11 of which came in the first half. The first half ended, I think, with 14 to 2 shots. The two Liverpool shots came from a Nunez header off a corner and a Trent long ranger in the 45th minute that just is a byproduct of Trent Alexander playing football. Um, what Liverpool did specifically to stop themselves being caught out in Arsenal pressure, which yielded quite a lot of chances. Uh, if we look at the chances in the first half, four sequences came from um, high turnovers. Another four came from set plays and the others were open play chances. Um, the high turnovers were basically the biggest factor we had in generating chances ourselves and the best ones came off of uh, opposition turnovers. McAllister in uh, particular was someone who we use as a sort of pressing trigger once he has a spectacle to get at him, which led to about four or five high turnovers that led to dangerous opportunities. What Liverpool did in the second half was they switched uh, Luis Diaz, who was playing on the left-hand side to the right-hand side, put um, Darwin Nunez to the left-hand side and played uh, Hakpo through the middle before putting uh, Jota there. Um, basically splitting their two, separating their two biggest transition threats apart from one another to create more transition threat by having one each side. Circumventing their own buildup by going long more, not insisting on playing short every time. Um, and then overloading the ball side to get second balls and uh, create danger that way. It worked well for the first 15 minutes. They were able to create a few shots between 50 and 60. Uh, we had a bit of control back at one point, but they then changed to Jota in the 60th minute. Got Jota on the pitch, got Kravenberg on the pitch uh, in the left eight and moved Jones to the six. At that point, they were able to really exploit us uh, in transition, especially uh, just immediately playing every ball they had into the channels, well-prepared balls at that. Uh, into the channels for either Nunez or Diaz to run onto uh, and create threat that way. Uh, uh, Nunez had one or two really good chances. Diaz had one or two really good chances in that period um, before then, yeah, petering out into that uh, set-piece sequence that led to the goal. Yeah, it's funny because you're describing that and I'm, I'm thinking back to watching the game live and... At no point before Liverpool scored did I 
particularly feel at danger because it felt like everything that they were doing was being swept up by the man, the myth, the legend that is William Saliba. Um, Manus, was that something that you felt as well? Did you feel like we had it under control or do you think do you think Liverpool properly properly took charge the second half? No, I completely agree with what you're saying. Even in the second half when they changed uh, like Seb mentioned, they, they split the wingers and changed Diaz over to the right side. Um, I think it was clear what they were trying to do and they succeeded uh, in getting momentum back in the second half. Uh, but that was also because we decided not to press as intently as we did in the first half one. And then secondly, uh, even, in, even during transitions, I didn't feel for a moment that they created any clear chance uh, apart from the one that Diaz did scope from towards the end. Not for a second, I felt like, you know, that they, they, they'll run through us or score a goal. Uh, but obviously, like, at that point, after missing the amount of chances that we had missed, the game sort of became a bit of a risk-reward. Like, we wanted to go for it. And uh, Liverpool were like, okay, they're going to press us. Why don't we just hold the ball, play slightly deeper and hit the long balls that we do. We just play our game. So I think credit to Klopp on realizing what the game was, on realizing the game state, um, getting momentum back in the second half. I think they they outshot us in the second half, uh, I believe. I think we just, we had about like four or five shots in the second half. Massively outshot us, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, uh, if you look at, the, look, look at it that way, uh, their shots were pro- probably mostly blocked. I didn't feel, like you said, like there was any threat as such. Uh, but yeah, they did get the momentum back, which sort of changed the game in their direction a little bit. I would counter to that. There were, I remember about four sequences that were really good chances of theirs that came before the goal. There was a Trent Alexander-Arnold long ball over the top to Nunez, where he let off a shot that just went past the post. There was one chance, I don't recall the origin of it, but it ended up in a save from Ramsdale that everyone talked about on Twitter, which then led to a corner situation, which then turned into Jota hitting the post and Nunez scuffing a 90% chance at goal um, before then the next uh, set-piece sequence leading to the goal itself. So there was quite a bit of danger coming towards them. There were also a few chances that didn't end up in a shot that were quite dangerous, with uh, Liverpool switching it out to Luis Diaz, who was then able to get it across or not able to get it across in one sequence to the Nunez overloaded side, which also created quite a bit of danger. So they really did find ways to hurt us in in our uh, disposition we had, especially considering with Trent Alexander-Arnold and Alisson, they have two of the best long-range chance creators in the world. Um, and in Luis Diaz and Damon Nunez, they just have excellent transition threats. So it becomes very hard to press when your opposition just doesn't give you the opportunity to press by immediately circumventing it entirely and going past the entire uh, Arsenal team. So yeah, I think the game changed in that we didn't really react to that as well as we should have. Our only change pre 
throwing the kitchen sink at them was uh, changing out Martinelli for Nelson while keeping basically the same shape and the same intentions, uh, just swapping out one winger for another. So I th- I, it, it's a game that was really well managed for about 45, 50, 60 minutes uh, and then fell apart due to not being able to react properly to an opposition adjustment. Yeah, um, you said something there, which I think is worth hanging on to and drilling into a little bit more. Um, you can't, there's not much you can do as the pressing side if an opposition chooses to bypass your press and does it well. Um, and I think that leads me on to quite nicely the, the pressing and how we use that as a vehicle to create chances. Because obviously last week we discussed in depth how we struggle to use deep build-up to create chances in possession. And Arteta, it seemed as though like Arteta was almost answering our issues by coming out here and saying, well, we're struggling to create chances in possession, but that doesn't mean we can't create chances in transition by pressing and then creating t- high turnovers and then generating chances from there, which why we did a really, really good job of. But the issue with that, at least to my eye, is that it's a reactive way of generating chances. You can only generate chances through your press if you can successfully press your opponent and you can only successfully press your opponent if they build out short and give you that opportunity. Uh, Liverpool by bypassing it just completely went past us Uh, Manus on that note you weren't on last week's podcast but I'm sure you had plenty of thoughts on what we discussed so I'd like to know what you ideally not in hour long full podcast form but in brief I'd like to know your thoughts on uh, the build up issues we discussed last week and creating chances through high turnovers instead um okay so there are two pretty separate issues i feel um so if if we talk about high turnovers i think you're right if a team doesn't build out from the back it's pretty hard to press them um and if they do decide to go along but it's also important to note when these teams do decide to go down especially liverpool that they they would ideally not want to hit it directly into their wingers from a goal kick. Ideally, if you if you watch the second half, I think they push uh, Allison much higher up outside the box. He's basically playing as the central centre-back, right? And from there, he can hit the first ball if he wants to. Uh, and it, as long as they bait the press deep enough, they can then they have an isolated 1v1 winger situation where they can just hit the long ball. So those are the situations... And when does uh, Alexander Arnold uh, usually hit the ball long? When he either drops from midfield back into the last line, receives, turns, hits it first time. Because that's when you, the entire press and our block is also moving forward with him. Or, or there's sort of like a transition moment. That's when they decide to hit it long. Uh, so there's an element of baiting our press slightly in there as well. Because that is when and how you can isolate Wingers 1v1. Uh, but coming to the other point, that is basically our build-up. Uh, 
not being able to create chances uh, through build up i think i think we we did pretty well at least in the context of this game because liverpool were not sitting deep in a block uh i think centrally this game we had much more control um i'm sure I, i'm sure it'll reflect in the numbers as well i haven't checked uh i think we pretty much held the center of the field especially with jorginho and rice i think the staggering was great our deep build up deep build up was basically a 4-2 so liverpool i think they even they didn't didn't press us like you know the usual club sides do and then in the mid uh, in the second phase or in the middle of the park when we were building up kivior would go into the number 8 and we do our normal 3-2 so i think we moved them around pretty well uh, i think the the rhs flowed pretty nicely and we created enough dynamism in our build up uh, to again uh, isolate our left wing which was nelson again and again in the box i think he had the highest box touches in the first half out of anybody on the pitch so i think both of those things sort of flow from one another and they worked in this game but again these things might not work in another game where teams just don't engage us and want the game to be slow right so it depends on the opposition as well i think the game in general is quite a nice microcosm of our season in that we are predispositioned to be a very good team that generates their opportunities from high turnovers and when a team insists on deep build up as liverpool did in the first half we're able to scuff them out with really nice pressing schemes if you hark back to the brighton game that's basically the entire game there um once teams circumvent their deep build up our defensive shape seems a bit discombobulated at points and once teams don't engage us that high up our own deep build up becomes an issue for us considering the personnel we have which is the entire thing we went through last week um i do think there is a lot of merit in what we did in the first half and i think it's worth discussing what we did in the first half because i think it's one of the biggest instances of platforming the players we had on the pitch in the best way we could considering who's next to them and going into that is probably the best thing to do here i think just in terms of playing our own game and pressing with intensity that's our identity that's what we do and we didn't let the game become a transitional game right from the off i think that was very important and i was i was thinking to myself why couldn't we uh why couldn't we do that at anfield i mean i know i get maybe that's a little naive doing that at anfield because it, you do you have sala in your mind like um but this game the way we approached it uh the pressing schemes were incredible uh even though havertz started as the number 9 uh we usually pressed like we do in 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 a 4-4-2-4 or a 4-4-2 ish you know your odegaard or havertz starts or a the press 4-1-3-2 high up when we cover the center backs and get the midfield yeah yeah so essentially it's it's basically man to man press uh and you follow your player a lot right um i think we basically wanted to target mcallister uh, like seb said as well and we i think it was him we got the ball off of twice or three three times um in in one of, in all of those turnovers like i think three out of those nine must have been off mcallister i think it was four off mcallister the biggest chance was 
I think a turnover from Kwanzaa, if I remember correctly. But I think, I think four of the big five was. Gomez or Kwanzaa. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. 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 And the other four were McAllister turnovers, yeah. So this is, I think, this is basically like we were talking about. This is this is a microcosm of how these big games usually go. Like in the first fifteen minutes, we could have scored four goals. Let's say we even score one goal, and the game is completely different, right? We we probably drop our intensity of press a little bit. Um, which we pick our moments to press. And then it's Liverpool who have to change their tactics first, and then we can adjust. But if you don't finish, like you, you need to keep putting that intensity in again and again. And we sort of dropped in the second half, as you can take. If you go back and watch, we didn't press as intently as we did in the first half. It's very important to convert at least one of those high turnovers, and they were like guilt-edged chances. I think Nelson should have scored in the fourth minute when. White sent him. I think it was White, or I don't remember who it was. Ramsdale. Ramsdale. He sent him straight through, and like he tries to take take an extra touch, and like basically the angles closed. I think. Uh, just speaking of those chances again, like some of the decisions I think were also not the greatest. Um, the one where we robbed Gomez of the ball, I think Havertz should have cut it back to Saka instead of going into Nelson. Because I think uh, it's an awkward angle, though. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's it's an angle. And it, that shot's easier to get blocked. But though, if he goes reverses it into Saka, it's it's a tap in because nobody's catching up to him. Uh, I think just little bit decision making uh, habits. Again, he had two chances where I think he should have had three goals himself. Two from corners and one which he just miscontrols or just looks up before controlling the ball and, and the chance basically gone. So, I mean, if you don't take your chances, the game gets stretched and then it's anybody's game. Um, so, it's it's risk and reward. And we took the risk of pressing Liverpool early on with intensity. We could have blown them away in this game, I think. Yeah, I'd like to harp back on structure uh, real quick. Considering I, what I basically meant with platforming our players was we found a structure that suited the personnel we had available to play the best game possible in, in those parameters. By which I mean the 4-2 build-up worked very well, um, especially with the staggering of the pivots with Jorginho and Rice as a true double pivot, basically playing off one another to create situations where one of them is facing goalwards and uh, able to progress the ball that way. The uh, There was an interesting nugget with uh, the fullbacks wherein higher up the pitch, Kivio was filling in the outside role getting Nelson more inside, which be- very uh, which benefited Nelson greatly in that he was able to get involved centrally and, as Mana said, had the most box touches uh, out of any Arsenal player in the first half, while White was moving more inside in the second line with Odegaard being a sort of springboard for Saka to get more inside and uh, move that way. Havertz, again, was deployed greatly, and I think as much as we can talk about the missed opportunities he had and him sort of making one or two of his good opportunities into less good opportunities, the sheer amount of threat he created by playing the way he played in running in behind and uh, connecting play, etc. He was pivotal to about eight of the 11 shots we had in the first half in creating them or being at the end of them either way. And the entire structure just worked in getting 
everyone on the pitch into positions they find themselves more, most comfortable in. So as much as we had discussions last week that we didn't do that against Fulham, for example, where the absence of Sinchenko wasn't ideally uh, covered, which led to huge build-up issues we had that game. In this game, considering the opponent we were playing, we did well to manage with the players we had available. Yeah, I think I agree with with platforming the players correctly. Uh, instead of inverting Kivior, we went with two centre mids, which plays into his strengths as well and gives him less responsibility on the ball in the centre of the field, but still allows him to do fullback things. And uh, I kind of I think uh, just wanted to touch very quickly on Havertz as well. Uh, everything he does off the ball is pretty good, uh, but whenever he's on the ball, I think it just um. The chance where he had the clean shot, like, you know, from, from the left side, he shot and it got saved. Because he missed the initial control to set him up, he would have shot from the center of the goal uh, if he took the correct touch. And I was just laughing. I, I knew that he he was he will not be able to control the ball. Um, even in a, like in a transitional situation. Like everything he does off the ball is pretty nice. His channel running was very very good. Um, he he he's a, a very high threat from set pieces. But whenever he's on the ball, I think he he just stops. He slows down the game a little bit too much, and decision making is just off. Um, and wanna also very quickly in terms of individuals, just wanna put it out there. I think Saka is not performing to the levels that we're used to. I think all season he hasn't hit care, but he was still in the in the goals and assists uh, because just by the virtue of being Saka. Uh, but I don't think he's giving us, you know, the hundred percent level that we're used to him. I, I think on Saka's underperformance, I think we probably can genuinely put it down to him being knackered. Um, I heard during the game one of the commentators say he's played in 99 of Arsenal's last 100 Premier League games. That's a lot. Um, (laughs) So he's probably a little bit shattered at this point. And I think you could say the same for the entire team, which I personally think, though we didn't really get into it last episode, was a major reason why we were just roundly crap against Fulham. Um, On Havertz, it's... Amazing how much he can do right while still being such a frustrating player. And I think that that's why he can be such a frustrating player for so many people is that you get the nerds like us coming in here and saying, oh, he's doing X, Y, and Z really, really well. But at the end of the day, people want to see him put the football in the goal. People want to see him do the tidy smart things that they expect from a 10 or a 9. And those final actions have been where he's been really struggling uh, so far in his Arsenal career and just so far in his career in England, full stop. If we go back even to his time in Chelsea, he struggled um, with with a lot of this stuff. I, I saw JJ Ball say something on Twitter along these lines about his career at Arsenal. Uh, and how uh, alludes to Chelsea breaking him in this sense. And then friend of the pod, CSC Central, came and said, no, actually, we've been saying this from the moment he arrived at Chelsea. Uh, so, yeah. 
Havertz, he, he does a lot of very good stuff. And you've heard me on this podcast sing his praises because I love it when he does the good stuff and it all clicks. But when it isn't clicking, it's so frustrating. Yeah, on Havertz, I broadly agree, though I would say technical limitations are is a sweeping statement. I think there are aspects to his game that are very good technically. When he drives through midfield, um, his link play when getting into combination play is excellent. He's an inconsistent ball striker. That much is clear and that much has always been clear. But I've come to the point where I don't typecast Havertz as a position, but more as a function to the team. And be it in the eight or the nine, the amount of threat he causes through his actions in open play, his ability as a target airily, his ability in dual winning, as well as his set-piece threat, is a combination, as well as just his intelligence in, in fulfilling roles the coach gives him, is probably the biggest factor why he's always been playing for basically every coach he's had in his career. And I think the functions he gives the team is enough to merit him playing as much as he has. Um... Another quick point, which I found interesting, the German commentator who commentated the game actually said this. Liverpool has one player over 2,000 minutes this season, which is Mo Salah. Arsenal have about five in Saliba, White, Rice, Odegaard, and Saka. And therein you see a lot of the load management issues we've had this season. Hmm. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Um, One final player I want to touch on before we move away from individual performances is Reese Nelson, who got a start ahead of Gabriel Martinelli in probably the biggest lineup decision that Arteta made pre-game. And he got an hour as well, um, coming off in the 62nd minute uh, for Martinelli. Manas, what did you make of Nelson's performance? Do you think he put a good case out for himself to get more starts? I think Nelson should have already played a few minutes, at least either uh, on the left or on the right. Um, It's funny because uh, we just named uh, the guys who have basically no replacement in the squad have played 2,000 minutes plus for us already. And I think Nelson could have taken some minutes off of Saka um, at the right-hand side. But again, in this game, I think it sort of suited him the way that we played. Uh, he should have probably had a couple goals himself. Um, he he was able to take on uh, Alexander Arnold. I think he he had the beating of him every time. Uh, if if Konade um, wasn't covering uh, Alexander Arnold, I think he would have gotten in behind every time he isolated him. So I think. He had he had a good game. I think he had a lot of freedom as well, uh, especially positional freedom in this game. He would pop pop up in 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 the right zones as well in central zones. He would come deep. He would go wide. So in that sense, we just said, okay, if if the left hand side is dysfunctional, let's just let it be dysfunctional and give the right winger more for more freedom, right? And we'll use Kivior as the width. As the guy who holds the weight. So I think this game sort of suited Nelson, right? A high touch. It's not necessarily in a, in a winger zone. So he made a pretty good case for himself. Uh, and I think he's a solid 
squad player, backup player, where he can start picking up more minutes, right? Taking some minutes off of Martinelli in certain games where probably Trossard is not suited to the left wing. Seb, do you agree that Nelson put up a good case for himself? And do you think he'll actually get those minutes? I think it was significant that he started in the first place, considering Trossard was available. We had the stylistic dysfunction with Trossard on the wings, a plenty on the potshot pod. Um, and I do think Nelson had a really, really good game. Especially he he started really hot, um, sort of cooled down a bit towards the middle of the game, but st- uh, middle of the first half, sorry. But generally played very well. What always impresses me with him is just his physical capacities he has now. As someone who's been sort of questioned on his physical abilities in the past, the burst he has, the the agility he has to get out of situations 1v1 is quite impressive. And he's generally a sound decision maker when he gets into advanced positions. So I think... At least I hope that this game cements him as the analog option on the wings rather than playing people that just aren't stylistically suited to the roles they're given because their names supersede those of other people. I I generally think Nelson's been one of the most underutilized players we have in the squad, bar the obvious Emil Smith row shouts. Um, so getting him more minutes benefits everybody. I absolutely agree um for me i think nelson was just kind of fine in this game like obviously he had that early big chance where perhaps he didn't quite have the confidence to take it on like first time or with the second touch put it away needed that little bit more security that multiple touches in theory bring um but yeah i I think he was a solid performer definitely didn't stick out in a bad way um, but I, neither did I think he put in a performance which really knocked your socks off, blew you away. And I worry that he needed to put up that kind of performance for Arteta to really stand up and take notice. I agree that him playing in this game was significant in that it wasn't Trossard who was fit and available. But as much as I, I think he did well and I hope he gets more game time, there is a niggling thing in the back of my head that just thinks he only started because it was early in the FA Cup, that he didn't score brace, didn't change the game by himself. I don't think... I, I think he needed to clear a ridiculously high bar for Arteta to give him more minutes and I don't think he managed it, so I worry that he's not going to play more. But that maybe that's just me being pessimistic, and maybe he will get the chances. No, I, I agree with you. I don't think I don't think um, him uh, Smithrow are gonna get minutes this season. Not a lot of minutes. Maybe in dead rubbers or games that like we don't particularly need a result from. I, I don't see these guys, uh, both of them playing a lot of minutes this season. No, I I think on the evidence that we've seen so far of how much Arteta trusts or doesn't seem to trust these guys, I'm inclined to agree. Uh, And on that somewhat frustrating note, uh, it's time to head for a break before we come back and discuss arguably the most frustrating thing from the recent games. 
which is the fact we cannot put the ball in the goal. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that five seconds of this podcast, which wasn't taken up by us complaining. So, I want to start this section of the podcast by quoting friend of the pod, Billy Carpenter, from his article last week. There is a simple, inconvenient truth about Arsenal's season, blinking like a neon sign. Arsenal are not creating enough open play goals. End quote. Last week, we really zoned in on the creating part of creating, not creating enough open play goals, really talked about the deep build-up, stuff like that. But the prevailing narrative, and a prevailing narrative of not just this game, but the last few, has been that we're just not finishing our dinner. We have created good goal-scoring opportunities, but have not put the ball in the goal. And this rings true once again for this game against Liverpool. Um, Seb, I'm going to come to you first, mainly so I can get you to have a lesser spot. Just, I'm going I'm to poke the fact that you like Havertz and think he had a good game, because the main criticism of him from this game was his uh, finishing aptitude or lack of. Uh, he had five shots in the first half, but no goals, and there were a couple times when people thought he didn't shoot early enough, he wasn't snapping into it like he should have been. Could you just talk to me about Havertz's finishing? Yeah, Havertz's finishing is historically inconsistent on account of a lanky body and not being able to sustain contact that well, uh, leading to him scuffing up his footwork at points. Um, if we look back at the chances he did have in the game, as I conveniently wrote every single one of them down, uh, the first was a back post header off a set play. Those are hard to judge considering the point of contact is usually king here. Uh, the first one was a bit behind him, con so really faulting him there is... I wouldn't personally do that. Uh, the second range was a long-range effort, uh, which led to a pretty good Allison save. Um, before another back-post header, uh, which he should have done a bit better with. Problem there was he was standing about a meter behind the post and positioned his head to head centrally so the ball just went off rather than taking his forehead and switching it across goal perhaps and the other one is a box shot where he did create an angle for himself that wasn't favorable or he should have taken it earlier perhaps uh, the problem there is just a general habits problem which is uh, absorbing contact and creating shots for himself is difficult for him on account of his body the other part of that is the creating threat part in that he did create chances for himself. Most of those opportunities, the two shots uh, are created by himself largely, um, as well as creating for others, uh, be that through opening up spaces through his running or just general chance creation itself. The two biggest chances came each from a moment where Havertz has the ball and creates the chance for an opponent 
the Nelson chance that led to the Oedegaard post hit that led to the Saka miss hit and the set piece we ran in the second half where we found Havertz clean through and he chipped the ball delightful chip by the way uh, over to Saka who wasn't set to take contact with it the thing here is finishing is largely variance based and on a normal day you would expect at least one of those with the the sheer number of opportunities he had you would expect at least one of those to end up in a goal and i would back him to at least score one of those he just had an off day in finishing but the credit we always say this about attackers and strikers generally is that you judge them on volume of chances he gets for himself rather than the clip by which he's finishing them and if he's not finishing them you would back him to finish them at some point basically on the whole and on that kind of more wide lensed analytics angle of judge your strikers by how many chances they generate not how many shots they score uh, like you are uh, correct when this is viewed from that perspective but Havertz has had a lot of off days and our whole attack has had a lot of off days especially recently yeah and you can't like it's all well and good to hand wave away one game two games of oh we just had a bad day but when we've created roughly six expected goals in the last three games and scored a big old goose egg, <laughs> there surely there's some underlying issue for us to have a crack at here, right? Definitely. I think the issue's threefold, right? There's a separation of what those opportunities are. Uh, we talked about that in the last podcast in that in the West Ham game we had about 30 shots four of which were good opportunities so taking suboptimal shots raises your xg while not really raising your threat of scoring and the other big issue on top of that is having one or two players that are historically inconsistent in finishing if your 1a and 1b option in scoring are Kai Havertz and Gabriel Jesus you do need to plan with a bit of inconsistency based on their historical track records. And the third one is, I would describe it as a regression to means by players that overperformed their expected goals quite heavily last year in Pukayo Saka and Martinelli, with probably a bit of overloading those players in that none of them have a direct analog and have to play through most of what they uh, have to play through injury at points, have to play through meaningless games because there is just no alternative for them as well as having them be 22 each so there's also a youth inconsistency aspect for it in summation the attack generates chances albeit sometimes very good chances sometimes an accumulation of speculative chances or not great chances the problem is that none of our attackers are reliable scorers and those that have been reliable scorers have been reliable scorers for a small period and have regressed on a historic overperformance last season. When you put it that way, it is kind of hilarious that we've put together a squad where 
in arguably our two best, our two biggest goal threats are the two guys from the last few years of the Premier League who are most most well known for underperforming when it comes to finishing in Havertz and Jesus. Who 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 let Edu do this? Who who decided that would be a good idea? <laughs> like oh God. If, I, if we should just go and get Timo Werner, snap him off off Tottenham before Jesus they get him. Christ. Just complete the trifecta of people who please not please please not please. <laughs> Uh, Manus, what are your thoughts? Yeah, um, I think the first point that Seb mentioned about create accumulating XG uh, rather than creating good chances, that's def- that's maybe that's an issue. Yeah, you can say that that's an issue. That what if you say a good chance is anywhere around a shot around 0.3.4 XG, that's about a good chance, um, and we're basically accumulating very small uh, shots worth of XG, XG chances and we're trading what like 2XG, 1.7, 1XG per game. But even then across, so that's exactly how XG is supposed to be read across let's say a three game period where you've created six goals, you can only score one. So it's an issue, there's an issue in finishing as well and as well the fact we definitely ran hot last season. And a lot of our goals were scored in transitional dynamic moments, which have been few and far between this season. So the shots that we're taking are for more crowded situations, uh, more crowded boxes, and not from dynamic transitional situations where people like Martinelli Saka can score a lot of goals from those situations. So it's corroborated by the fact that if you go look at the individual XG numbers from our players, they're basically scoring, performing as per their XG, right? And then if you go, let's say, for example, let's if, if you go and open the XG numbers from Man City, and if you remove Haaland, who's a freak, if you look at anybody below Haaland, all of them are performing more or less according to their XG. So, so there's two things that we can do to address this. One, keep creating the number of shots and chances that you are. Uh, that you are creating <clears throat> and hope to convert some of those. And we should be converting some of those chances. I think that against West Ham, we should have converted a few. Fulham, we were just basically shit. Uh, so I'm just, that game's a write-off for me. And against Liverpool, we should have scored three goals in the first 15 minutes. But then again, we we come back to the biggest issue here, right? In the West Ham game, who had the biggest chances? Jesus, I think. Gabriel Jesus. And against Liverpool, the biggest chances fell to... Nelson Havertz. Yeah. And then we go back to the historically underperforming XG aspect. So it's a chicken and egg situation. Well, well of who, the what, opportunity yeah. surely then to get out of this cycle without buying Victor Osman right now uh, is to try and get one of our historically better finishes on the end of those chances instead. So... Do you think there's anything we can do to maybe get Gabriel Martinelli on the end of these chances as opposed to a Jesus or a uh, of a Havertz? Yeah, it's to make games more dynamic and transitional by pressing or by creating chances through the press. But that doesn't happen because people are not pressed, like they're not getting paid, they're happy to sit in a block against us. So either we get a game-breaking striker like Osimhen, which is which I was coming to basically, which was the second part, or 
you trust your players to finish and i don't think the second point is going like we're not going to do the second thing at least in january so you trust your players to start finishing some of these chances and the system already creates a lot so i think there is no way that these numbers don't turn around basically i think the biggest improvement we can make on the attacking numbers without adding a game breaking attacker is not in personnel but rather in fixing some of the deep build up issues we talked about last week to then create better opportunities for the players we have up front considering a lot a lot of the big chances are at wingers especially scored last year were clean looks as man has said so getting to a point where we are able to access the last third in ways that gets them into better positions be that fixing wide dynamics or fixing deep build up issues are the the problem areas that we need to address to fix our attack other than betting on players to score more goals from the opportunities we make which is another issue but one that isn't fixable on a training ground and it's just a sort of statistical anomaly at the at the moment yeah basically basically what sep said right so you either fix through the central midfield you get better players to create better chances Uh, and you trust your players to finish them or you fix uh, fix the left side dynamics to get martinelli slightly more inside on goal which i think um i think on the balance of the season i i i personally don't agree with the general concept consensus that he's receiving deep i think he still gets a lot of box touches but maybe he's not making the right decisions that he used to before so what i'm about to bring us on to is a talking point that's we tend to avoid because it's quite hand wavy difficult to truly analyze because we are not psychologists we're not psychiatrists we're not sports therapists sat here doing this podcast we're just nerds who like tactics but there is an extent to which i feel at least that the recent finishing issues could possibly be put down to confidence problems when you're watching players take one maybe two extra touches before shooting regularly when you're watching the way that the players heads dropped after liverpool scored as if they knew they were never going to get themselves back into this game no matter how many strikers arteta tried to fit on the pitch at once it's hard to escape the idea that we're just struggling as a as a team with confidence in front of goal right now and each game we go without without scoring is making that problem worse i have a feeling i know the answer to this and it's probably not much but how much of this of our recent finishing issues do you think can be put down to potential confidence issues in front of goal I think there is an argument to be made that a mixture between fatigue and confidence has definitely played a part especially in the last two games. If you are in a position where you're top of the league at Christmas and fourth at New Year's and the scrutiny that comes with that that has to play some sort of psychological role. I wouldn't overindex the psychological role it plays but it definitely has some sort of impact and I think what 
I would argue that the biggest thought going through the player's head once um, the own goal went in was not so much that this is a terrible situation, but more so that let's just please get this over with and get to Dubai and get into training camp and rest up for two weeks. I mean, the, the Christmas schedule is historically taxing on players' bodies, and we've seen subpar performances from most of the teams that have played quite a lot with their starters or have relatively slim squads as is. Newcastle, biggest example of that. So I think fatigue is more so an issue, but having a mini crisis and getting booed off the pitch probably doesn't help. No, it doesn't really. Uh, Manas, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I think in terms of confidence, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I'm the correct person to analyze that. I just wouldn't know. But what we can see for a fact on the pitch is that Martinelli is not making the right decisions at times. Saka, who's probably not our third gear since the start of the season. And um, just to gloss over this entire first half of the season, I want to say we predicted that we would slow down in the first half of the season. Because one... Uh, we've basically changed the dynamics in build-up. And second, because we ran extremely hot in the first half of last season. So comparatively, we're basically performing to the level that we should have. And the good thing is that we're in touch with the top of the league. And you only need to look at, I think, Liverpool uh, to see that they are running extremely hot this season. They are outperforming their XG numbers by a lot. Uh, so I mean, I, I think the Liverpool Maybe game. Regress- I, th- I think the Newcastle game has put some of that in order again. Some of but, some gloss yeah. on that, yeah. So I mean, yeah. So if if they slow down a little bit, it's second half of the season. I don't know, but I think I think it'll take it'll take one game where the floodgates could open up for us. I think it'll it, there could be one game where we go and score four and five goals. Can we play Lons at home again? Uh, before we move on from the Liverpool game Bumbo asked on Twitter hey can you discuss if the problem isn't necessarily tactical but that of age profile it's a pretty young team with a pretty young manager even some of the coaches are pretty young also how does it affect their relationship with the fans Um, to me I'm not sure if this is this issue right so if you ask this in May last year, when we just crumbled uh, and bottled the title, I genuinely think the two main causes of that were Saliba getting injured and it being the entire squad almost's first run at a league title. And they just couldn't really handle the pressure. And that's what that's what did them in. Uh, in terms of our attacking issues this season i personally don't see any way in which the age profile comes into it um perhaps you could link it into what i was saying earlier about lack of confidence but like jesus is 26 27 Havertz, well Havertz is young but like these aren't inexperienced guys Havertz scored a winning goal in the champions league final for crying out loud like as much as you're not wrong like empirically i don't think that's the issue here i think it comes down a lot more to what we've discussed outside of that um seb and manas 
do you have many thoughts to add yeah 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 i agree i mean um i don't think it's an age thing because uh how, how what how does that adage go like if you're good enough you're old enough and like these guys have been playing together for what like about two and a half years now and we've done a very like we've done a league run we've, we went deep in the league i don't think it's any more a question of age anymore for these guys but i think yeah experience does count a little bit at times in certain games uh maybe in the champions league we'll see the experience factor play come in play at some point because even our manager hasn't managed in the champions league the way uh you know some other managers have uh so i think experience counts but not age those i think you can separate those two things uh well, yeah i don't think age is a factor at all i would put the tactical over anything else at the moment with regards to finishing issues but an age debate is not something i think is is necessary here apart from the fact that saka and martinelli are 22 each so you would probably guess with a little bit of sort of age inexperience inconsistencies but i would more so put that down to martinelli being a historically inconsistent decision maker and saka being simply overburdened i think saka is an outlier in that he's been quite consistent from the moment he joined the team at 18 before we close out the podcast, I have one final topic of discussion away from the Liverpool game. Obviously, it is now the January transfer window, and the major rumour of the last few days has been linking us to Everton's Amadou Anana, who we've discussed before uh, on the pod as a midfielder, who we might we would quite like to add to um, to our squad. But I've seen murmurs on the internet of discontent at this at this suggestion because they people are identifying our problems as being in progressing the ball through the center and worrying that anana doesn't exactly help with that um seb what are your thoughts on anana and do you how, how would you feel if we brought him in in january i like onana as a player in isolation i don't think he's necessarily what we need i think we should be targeting a passer most of all rather than a carrier or a a physical profile um especially if we do want to continue with the double pivot midfield which is something i'm quite interested in or just fixing the left aid issues i don't think onana is that profile um i think some of that discontent also comes from us not scoring many goals and wanting another attacker, which I think is a discussion worth having, especially a wide attacker, just to ease some of the burden on Saka and Martinelli and get people that are stylistically similar to them in the team so they don't have to play every game. But the logic for a midfielder is there, and I think a midfielder would suit the squad and is probably prior number one. I don't really think Onana is the profile I would personally go for. I was initially agreeing with you when I first saw the rumours, but then I saw people on Twitter talking about how we really miss a Rice replacement at this point in terms of just a physical presence 
at the base of midfield. Like at the moment, our right back up is Jorginho, uh, and that's just a completely different player who ideally works best alongside Rice, not instead of him. Uh, so I think with that in mind, I'm in favour of the Anana deal, just as someone who we can sit on our bench and bring on instead of Rice and maintain that physicality at the base of our midfield. Um, I am aware that that's not what Anana's been doing really well for Everton at the moment. I believe the thing that he's been good at is been being a more traditional box-to-box player and actually attacking contributions has been what he's been known for. So getting into the box, being a physical presence in that sense. Um, so maybe I'm chatting shit. Purely on resource allocation, I think it's worth punting on Rice's fitness record to get another player who is more of a passer than a direct analog to Rice, in that you could then use that player perhaps who has a better physical profile than Jorginho, albeit not one at the level of Onana, to be the second phase midfielder and betting on Rice to play most of the significant minutes. Because spending 50 million, which is some of the reporting around it, on a ostensibly backup for a position of a player with an almost flawless injury record is not ideal squad alloc- uh, resource allocation, in my opinion. To be fair, he'd probably also like Havertz rotation as much as the Rice rotation, but I, I think he gives us options to maintain physicality in midfield while removing one of Havertz or Rice, which is just make what makes sense to me. As a squad that's built primarily out of possession, I think that's a fair argument. Yeah, I think it's it's this is more of an opportunistic buy and a forward-looking squad building addition because I think we're expecting party to leave definitely at least in the summer, if not in January. So we need another midfielder and Eleni won't be here and I don't know about Jorginho. So it is, I don't think he's an immediate need, but... I can justify the immediate need angle with what uh, Tal said, uh, that he could slot into eight. Or he could be at the base and the rice could be at eight. So he they, they sort of balance out the left-hand side somehow. Uh, but yeah, I think in terms of rice backup, again, I don't know whether we need a rice backup. Um, but the thing is that if we do lose rice for any significant period of time, I think we're pretty much fucked in the center of midfield. Yeah. I think it's just it's a different kind of uh perspective uh, to address current issues. Uh but I think ni- uh, 60% this is a forward looking buy but 40% I think he I think Arteta feels that he could slot him into the eight position to get more balance on the life so to fix the dynamics on the left hand side a little bit. Either him in the eight or Rice in the eight and you just switch between the ten, between the two of them, and with that, I think now's a pretty good time to wrap up the podcast. Uh, for those of you who have stuck with us right to the end, I'll give you a little treat and tell you what's coming up next week. Obviously, Arsenal don't play next weekend; they got a little winter break, but that doesn't mean that we're stopping producing podcasts next week. Alex Manus and special guest Jake Fox are going to be taking a deep dive into Arsenal's set pieces 
and looking at why we've been able to get so much positive value out of our attacking set pieces so far this season. Um, Jake has written a couple articles on Arsenal's attacking set pieces over on his medium. So if you want a, a primer for next week's pod, go and check them out. Uh, I'm really excited for next week's pod. So hope you guys are looking forward to that as well. Thank you to Seb and Manus for joining me as always. If you want to find them or any of the Potshot crew, you can do so on Twitter. The links to do so are in the podcast description. You can also find down there the podcast's Twitter, at PotshotPod. Uh, we will be posting on the regular about podcasts and probably not much else because we just kind of use it to post about podcasts. Maybe we'll start posting about other things too one day. We'll find out. If you enjoyed the pod, please do leave us a like and a review. Uh, we got some really good feedback uh, about last week's episode and not just because of its title. Uh, so if you are enjoying the pod, please let us know by leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help us out. The music was made by James Blake. You can find him on all good music platforms at JW Blake. We will see you next week for that set pieces pod. See you there. Cheers. <laughs>